Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, May 12th. We begin with a look at the continuing impact the pandemic is having on the mental health of Canadians, specifically in children. We speak with a professor of child development for some tips on how parents can recognize mental health issues in their kids and the resources available to help in our province. Next, it's the story of a local man doing what he can to help Ukrainians in their battle against the Russian invasion. We speak with Riaz Mamdani, who's behind a unique program delivering medicine and essential goods to the people in the war-torn country using drones. Then we look at the climate crisis through a different lens. We speak with Dr. Britt Ray about her book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Dr. Ray offers up suggestions on how to best approach the conversation surrounding the topic with our kids without creating irrational anxiety. And finally, Flames Fever is in full swing. Our on-air contributor Dave McIver put on his jersey to get fully immersed in the Sea of Red, taking it all in at the Red Lot at Stampede Park for Game 5 and talking with business owners about the positive impact the playoffs are having on their business. If your child has struggled with their mental health during the pandemic and continues to struggle, it's likely time to take action. With some insight into recognizing signs of child and youth mental distress, we're joined this morning by Sherry Madigan, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Determinants of Child Development at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Doctor. Thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Let's start with uh, this. If you could explain to us the term baseline change and a little bit about what parents should be watching for in that regard. Yeah, it's really good to kind of take, take stock, really, of how your kids are doing. And we talk about baseline because that's you know, how, they, how they've been doing typically. So maybe that's before the pandemic or um, throughout the pandemic, how they've been doing sort of on a good day. Um, and what you want to look what, what you want to look for is change in that sort of prototypical day for them. So if they have, you know, over the course of a few weeks, their mood has changed, their motivation has changed, some of their behaviors have changed from what is that baseline level, um, that's when you, you really want to get attuned to that and have a discussion with them about it. But it, it is difficult because and it might be a case, Dr. Madigan, that I've gone through a hard time, so I might not be, you know, at my best to recognize that even family members of mine are struggling as well. Is that uh, one of the issues too? Yeah, you know, I think we've all been going through a lot during the last few years and certainly many parents are struggling as well. And when our attention is focused on work and, mm-hmm. and our own health and well-being, it can be hard to tune in to our kids and, and those changes. But maybe uh, parents listening today might sort of take a moment to think about, you know, how, are, how have my kids been, been doing, really? And, you know, we all have good days and bad days, but what we're looking for in terms of mental distress amongst kids is change that's been sustained for a little bit for a, for a while. So kids who were previously like really excited and engaged about going to say soccer practice, um, all of a sudden you've noticed they don't want to go or they're trying to avoid that um, or they don't want to be around their friends. So you're, you're really looking for some, some more overt changes in kids that have lasted for a while. For parents and grandparents, we know kids are pretty resilient, right, as a rule. But is it a little more difficult in terms of this, in terms of bouncing back from the stress of the pandemic and all that came with it? Yeah, I think we're really trying to bounce forward from the pandemic. And I think that we've expected kids to be resilient, but really kids can be most optimally resilient when 
they have the support structure there to help them through difficult times. And that means parents being attuned, teachers being attuned, family physicians being attuned to how kids are doing, um, because they're really relying on us to also be able to help them through a difficult time, um, which for many youth has, has really, you know, the pandemic has been really difficult for them. So if we've recognized this as a parent or a caregiver in our children's or preteens, or teens for that matter, we might not be equipped to, to really deal with it or have those conversations or, or get them help. How do we, how do we start? Because for a lot of families, this might be the first time they've noticed something like this. Yeah, it's a great question. So you want to start by actually just opening the door to a conversation and just asking them, like, how are you doing? Or saying, you know, I heard that kids are, have been really struggling lately. You know, what's the pandemic been like for you? So for some kids, they're okay with the direct question and other kids are like it when it's a little bit more broadened and it's less focused on them. So you can try either of those strategies. Um, And then, you know, hopefully they tell you a little bit about what's going on for them. And I think oftentimes as parents, our first strategy is to want to jump in and problem solve. Mm -hmm. But one of the best things we can do for kids is really just validate their feelings. So if they say, you know, it's actually been really hard. So we want to say, I can imagine. Um, Tell me a little bit more about that. You're really just trying to get them to open up and talk. Um, And then once kids feel like they've um, been validated a little bit about their feelings, that's that's when you can engage in some problem solving together about what would be the next steps in terms of getting some help for how they've been feeling or what they've been struggling with. Are there any tools, say online, particularly where parents, grandparents can go to sort of, you know, maybe some tips and tricks like that of of getting the kids to open up and talk and or the next step, do we need to find them help? Where do we do that? Yeah, well, one thing parents and any caregiver can do is talk to kids about kids' help phone. Um, You can, um, you know, get one of the magnets and make sure it's on your fridge so kids can see it. You know, this is a helpline that kids can call to and, and really have someone immediate to talk to 24 hours a day. And for some kids, they prefer to do that versus talk to um, talk directly, for example, to their parents. Um, there are some other um, great websites like Anxiety Canada, where kids, kids and caregivers can go and learn a little bit more about some signs of mental distress and and, and some supports they might um, be able to implement. And then if kids are really, or parent caregivers are really worried, uh, you know, a good strategy is first to talk um, and then to go see your family physician and to work through some strategies together um, that, that you might be able to implement. And then that way the family physician is also there to monitor the child over time and help them in future situations where they might feel the same. You have taught us a lot today. We are grateful for your uh, your help and your insight this morning. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Appreciate it. That's Sherry Madigan, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Determinants of Child Development at the University of Calgary. It's called Drone Aid Ukraine and it's helping save lives as the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. With details on the program and where it's at now is one of the creators of the Alberta-based Drone Aid, Calgary businessman and philanthropist. Uh, Philanthropist. That's the one. You know, it's, it's not a Monday, but it feels like it. <laughs> but I know who can speak correctly. It's Riaz Mamdani, our guest this morning. Good morning to you, Riaz. Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Philanthropist. Want to get it out there. Um, let's <laughs> start with some background. What exactly is Drone Aid Ukraine? Um, Drone Aid is an organization that I've set up. It's a North American not-for-profit campaign that 
gets drones, life-saving drones, on the ground in the Ukraine right away. Uh, these drones are helping saving lives or helping to save lives by uh, providing analysis of situations. They're doing search and rescue, and they're able to deliver medical supplies like insulin and antibiotics. We're able to uh, do these things uh, without risking the lives of first responders and volunteers. We, we say we're able to save lives without risking lives. That's amazing, Riaz. Though I'm picturing, you know, the little drones that the neighbor might have, for example. These must be very, very different from that. They're very different. These aren't the drones you see at your neighbor's house or at the park. These are sophisticated um, uh, pieces of technology. They they can uh, they contain the ability to uh, seek heat signatures. They are able to seek chemicals in the air. They're able to relay incredible amounts of insightful information when they're looking at a at a site of devastation or where we think people might be hurt. They have refrigerated compartments where we're able to deliver up to forty five pounds of um, uh, life saving technology like insulin. Antibiotics and medication or bandages, and we're able to do that in a, in, a, in an area where the terrain can be risky, where um, uh, roads don't exist, and where where people really do need this life saving help. So you've explained what they do, Riaz. Can you give us kind of a, because we're on the radio a mental picture of the size of these drones? They're about four and a half feet square. Uh, they have multiple rotors. Um, and then depending on which drone, um, uh, they, they become a little bit bulkier. But four and a half feet square is about the right size. Fascinating. Okay, so tell us, you know, how, why this project? Why has this become your mission? It became my mission because about six or seven weeks ago, I was sitting there watching the news, um, couldn't believe the horror the devastation and the helplessness that, that that exists in the Ukraine. And all I could think of at the time was, well, we'll write checks to the Red Cross or uh, other people doing good there. And as I thought about it, I um, came up with the plan of being able to do more than just writing a check. I've participated in a lot of philanthropic or social ventures throughout my career, but um, I haven't had the direct opportunity, direct as in what we're able to do with Drone Aid Ukraine, the direct opportunity to know that we're saving lives right away. I'm 100% convinced that these drones that we're getting on the ground in the Ukraine are saving lives. We save lives that wouldn't otherwise be saved. And I haven't been part of a uh, an organization where I can say that with 100% certainty. So I created the Drone Aid Ukraine in order to be able to do that. So you created Drone Aid. You're, you're super passionate about it. We can hear it in your voice, Riaz. But are drones your business? Do, do you know a lot about yeah. drones going in or was this just the best outlet for you? Yeah. <laughs> I did know a little bit about drones. I um, uh, financed and took a company public about 12 years ago, that is the leading drone manufacturer now in North America, a former Calgary company uh, called Dragonfly, uh, now head, uh, head office in the U.S. and trading on the NASDAQ, but a company I've been involved with for about a dozen years. 
So and tell, that's given me my insight into drones. Sorry. No, that's okay. Sorry to interrupt you. I just, so to, I mean, can people help out? Do you, do you need more drones? Do you need the supplies that the drones will carry in? What, what more can we do to help out? Because it sounds like a really amazing yeah. project. We, we really do need it all. And it's really the people of Ukraine that need it all. They need absolutely everything. They need every idea that they can, that we can possibly give them. The devastation, the horror is just so big. Um, the, the obvious way to contribute to my cause or our cause is uh, a website called DroneAid.co. That's DroneAid.co. That allows direct contributions, but we're looking for more than that. We need ideas. We need partners. We need engagement. There's so much to do, and we need people who can think think about how they can contribute. Of course, money helps, but we need ideas. We need partners. We, we're creating an infrastructure there to make sure that these drones are utilized properly. We're creating training programs for the people of Ukraine so that you know these drones can be fully optimized and they can be used to save lives. We're looking, we're purchasing medical supplies for these drones to uh, uh, be delivering. Um, we can use partners in the in the areas of medical supplies, things that these drones um, uh, are obviously going to need. We can we can share the infrastructure that we're creating with with other groups of people or other agencies in order to maximize the good that we can do in Ukraine. It's interesting because this is a war like no other in the sense that we're hearing about information and the tech involved online. Uh, that, that comes to uh, pieces of this conflict in the Russian invasion, uh, but also, like you, are making a difference on the other side of the world. It's sometimes I think maybe you are doing what you can, rolling up your sleeves, but a lot of people, not that they're, you know, uh, there's a, a lack of compassion, but think, I can't do anything because I'm on the other side of the world. Sure, I, I agree with you, but there's so much we can do. And if we can't come up with ideas, we can contribute to these amazing causes. Uh, that are there, providing different types of aid, providing food, providing shelter, uh, providing psychological assistance for these, uh, uh, for, 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 for the people of Ukraine. Um, we have this idea uh, because of my background in uh, in the technology, my my understanding of how this can be deployed to save lives, we've been able to create an initiative to go do what we're we're a hundred percent sure needs to be done to save lives. But I, I really believe there's so much for everyone to do. There's, there's fundraisers, there's church groups, so many initiatives that are going on in Calgary and around the world today to um, uh, provide some sort of help for, for, for the people of Ukraine. Pleasure to talk to you today, Riaz. Thanks so much for sharing the project that you're you're undertaking and, and hopefully people can, can get involved with it. Thanks for your time this morning. My absolute pleasure. Take care, guys. Thank right you. Too. Thanks. Riaz Mamdani is a CEO of Strategic Group and founder of Drone Aid Ukraine. You can get more online again at droneaid.co. If the current cr- uh, climate crisis is weighing on you or maybe your kids, you're not alone, but there is help. Britt Ray is a PhD and expert on the mental health impacts of the climate crisis, like eco-anxiety and eco-grief. Uh, she joins us now this morning. Good morning to you, Britt. 
Morning. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. Let's let's break this down because these are two terms that are new to me. Eco-anxiety and eco-grief. How do you define the two? Yeah, so eco-anxiety has been defined by the American Psychological Association as the chronic fear of environmental doom, which I think is a very apt way of describing the feelings that many are now reporting of an overwhelming sense of not only fear, anxiety, but also, you know, sadness, maybe a sense of helplessness or powerlessness and anger about how serious the climate crisis had become and the dangerous threats it's presenting our communities with. Ecological grief refers to that feeling of loss over precious things that are being destroyed, you know, coastlines we call home perhaps disappearing to the sea level rise or species that we, we love going extinct. Um, or even anticipatory grief, the idea that all this is going to ramp up and get worse can cloud people's thoughts and really take an effect on their well-being. In your book, Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis, how do we find purpose then? (laughs) Well, that's a big question. There's many, many aspects to that. We are in this moment of mass awakening around how serious the climate crisis is, right? The the threats that it poses to our institutions and ourselves. And so that that produces these challenging feelings. And many of us might want to suppress them and not face it and kind of engage in soft denial about about how bad this has become, turn away from it, and not really connect to those parts of ourselves that take responsibility and act on the crisis because it protects us from anxiety and pain. But I argue that actually if we can welcome these feelings and learn to not only acknowledge them, but talk about them with others, share them with others, validate them, and mirror them, then we can start to move through them and process them, internalize them in a way that is helpful and strengthening. When people sit with the distress alone, they can end up feeling many times worse because they many report that they feel like they're the only ones who care about this. Um, but actually, many people care, and not that many of us are apathetic. We want to have a healthy environment in which to thrive and for our kids to thrive. And so starting that sharing and learning that actually what mental health experts argue is that there's nothing wrong with you if you feel this. It's not a pathology or a disorder. It's a sign of health, and it's a normal response to what's going on. Therefore, we can start to use these feelings as navigational tools to point us in the direction of how we're going to be at this time and orient ourselves to you know, demand change from our leaders and also take action in our communities and strengthen them to be more resilient and then work on the internal processes of building up our own psychological resilience to bear bear the cost of more loss and, and difficulty and, and human suffering as the climate disasters ramp up. So um, all that unleashes purpose. It unleashes deeper meaning about, you know, when we reevaluate what's going on according to our own deepest values, then we can start to make changes that really matter and kind of brush away the distractions in our lives that, that might be getting in the way or allowing us to continue denying the importance of all of us taking a stand on this to protect ourselves, to protect our health. Dr. Ray, you know, focusing on the, the anxiety and grief portion of uh, climate climate change and th- this crisis, I'm, I'm wondering, I, I'm drawing a parallel because I was in the 80s as a child uh, thinking about nuclear war and I was scared. Mm-hmm. I was very scared as a small child and I thought it was inevitable. And I don't want to draw the exact parallel because this is a different situation, uh, but nobody could really ease my fears. So when it comes to easing fears now, you know, from where I'm looking at it with kids, how do we have that conversation without scaring them when we're talking about the facts? It's a really good point you bring up. That 
unleashed existential fear in the public at large at moments of heightened nuclear threat. I write in my book about how the Cuban Missile Crisis affected my, my own father's psychology in a similar way. It produces this kind of psychic numbing, this overwhelm of feeling like you're totally exposed and you're going to be annihilated and what can you do? And it causes a person to shut down. It's a psychological response of the nervous system. And, and you know, you could argue that on behalf of the public at large, we're, we're kind of acting as though we're psychically numbed in, in response to the climate crisis threat, too, because we're not taking that kind of mass action at the scale that's demanded to help protect our health and futures here. Um, however, they're not the same kind of threat, and we can do a lot. You know, it's it's not about detonation of a bomb or, or not, this binary effect. This is really about many choices within complex systems that we make towards protecting, um, protecting ourselves and other people and species mm-hmm. now. So um, that means we have solutions, and we do, of course, need to be aware of the problem and continue to focus on this alarming science that spells out in grim detail what we're doing without dramatic change. However, we also need to be big enough, capacious enough to let in the more positive, constructive, nourishing stories and possibilities about the little wins along the way, the the people who are working together to create resilient responses, um, which are also true. So it, we have to go from only outlining the problem to also focusing on the things that we're working for and giving people solutions that they can touch in their own lives, no matter how small. Mm-hmm. All of us have this problem of being overwhelmed by how big it is. The fact that we can't do something as individuals to reconcile the threat is difficult psychologically. But we need to get comfortable with that discomfort. Know that our small actions do matter, mm-hmm. even though we can't, you know, produce the full healing outcome we want. And that we're all tiny drops in a big tidal wave that's needed right now. So true. So, so we have to, I have to jump in, uh, Dr. Ray, and yeah. we'll send people to your book and maybe they can find some help through that. Generation Dread, Finding Purpose in an Age of Climate Crisis. Author, PhD, and expert in the mental health impacts of the climate crisis. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Dr. Britt Ray. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very so much. much. With a big win last night and a 3-2 series lead for our Calgary Flames, This city is now well into playoff mode. Our on-air contributor Dave McIver took a trip down to the Red Mile and the Red Lot last night to see what all the fuss is about. Playoff fever has hit the city of Calgary, and whether you're in the Dome, at the Red Lot, or on the Red Mile, it's likely you'll get caught up in it. With only so many playoff tickets to go around to get inside the Dome, it's evident over the first five games that people are looking to find that playoff atmosphere outside of the saddle-shaped building. Naturally, people head towards the Red Mile to hit a pub or bar. As Ernie Sue with the Alberta Hospitality Association tells me, the atmosphere before, during, and after the game is pretty electric. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great to see like a lot of the restaurants and the pubs. They've been filling right up for the game, uh, for all the games, um, with a little bit of a lineup. So you know, it's just great to see the Red Mile come alive again for sure. I mean, it's been electric. It's been nervous for sure. Um, it, there's a nervous energy uh, burning throughout the room during these games. I mean, they've been so tight, uh, but it's it's been great to see people uh, come alive. Especially that Goudreau penalty shot. Uh, I think all of the Beltline probably heard uh, every restaurant go off during that. And after the game, as people spill out onto the streets, the Red Mile is once again a place for celebration. Well, I mean, <laughs> you live in the Beltline, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get a little loud for sure. Um, but we, I mean, the police have done a great job uh, thus far of, of, of keeping things, you know, pretty tame and contained. Um, 
but again, it's it's good it's good to see people cheering again. I mean, we everybody needs it. Well, after the after the after a win for a home game, yeah, you're seeing the mile come right back uh, alive for sure. Uh, lots of pedestrian traffic coming down after the game for sure, and um, uh, there'll be you know we see the energy levels and the volume stay all the way till 2 a.m. So that's great to see as well. And while the Flames still have a ways to go just to win this first series, the benefit of this early success to one of the hardest hit industries of the pandemic is noticed. Well, I think it's important for, you know, every local restaurant, neighborhood pub, um, they can get into that second round. Uh, we'll start to see far more energy spreading around the whole city um, and, and head out to your neighborhood pub. I mean, you're, you hit it there with your neighbors and um, it's always closer to home. Another option for Flames fans this year is relatively new. It's the Red Lot. Just steps away from the Saddle Dome's west entrance is the gathering place for those who want to support the local hockey heroes. And for fans, it's just another way to experience that atmosphere so many are craving. I mean, the Red Lot is uh, pretty impressive. they got a massive screen down here. It looks like it's crazy HD. Uh, and, uh, you know, I really like how they uh, how they set up. Lots of room for people to come down here. So I think it's a good place to check out. Oh, my gosh. It is so fun. It's so fun to see everyone in their jerseys and everyone wearing red. I'm even wearing red, and I hate red. Yeah, you can cut the tension with a knife, you know, game five, pivotal game five. A lot of folks down here are looking for the big win, and, you know, you can feel the atmosphere is electric. And the atmosphere in the Dome is a totally di di different thing. It is electrifying here, and it's so awesome! With food, drinks, games, giveaways, and live entertainment at the Red Lot, the excitement will only continue to grow if the Flames can continue to win. And hey, you never know who you might run into down there. Please welcome from your Calgary Stampeders Football Club, a couple of stars to show off to you. Please welcome Renee Perrineau and Richie Bangleton. And as Flames forward Michael Backlund said last night, the effort from Flames fans inside and outside the building hasn't gone unnoticed. Uh, but it's also great to see all the fans outside the ring too, uh, sharing us on. Uh, that's awesome. The the red lot, I think they call it. Nah, it's great. Uh, see so many people showing up and uh, gives you a buzz too when you look up the screen and see all the fans out there. For 770 CHQR, I'm Dave McIver. Go Flames, go. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.